Yeah, tonight we're continuing our, our series in First Peter, and uh, we're on the theme of foundational faith for a changing culture. I'm jumping right into our teaching text tonight. Hear the word of the Lord. First Peter 2, verses 18 through 21. If you care, this is the New Living Translation. You who are slaves must submit to your masters with all respect. Do what they tell you. Not only if they are kind and reasonable, but even if they are cruel. For God is pleased when conscious of his will, patiently endure unjust treatment. Of course, you get no credit for being patient if you are beaten for doing wrong. But if you suffer for doing good and endure it patiently, God is pleased with you. For God called you to do good, even if it means suffering just as Christ suffered for you. He is your example, and you must follow in his steps the word of the Lord. In case you missed it, there are a lot of dead things around right now, and I'm not talking about rats. I am talking about skeletons and little skeletal dogs because we are in spooky season. We are in spooky season. Can you feel it? Or what? Anybody feel spooky? <laughs> Every year when, when Halloween comes around, I'm reminded uh, almost any turn that I hate being scared. I hate it. I don't like horror movies. I don't like scary movies. Uh, one time, my friend was in town, and uh, we were like, hey, we should go see a movie. And so... We went to see a movie, and we got there like a little late, you know, like say the movie started at 1.15. We got there at like 1.25, so right towards the end of the credits, um, and uh, I remember it like it was uh, this morning. Uh, there's a movie called The Nun, which is about a demon-possessed nun, and at the end of the trailer, said demon-possessed nun jumps at the screen. And little old Ryan comes around the corner in the movie theater just as the jump scare hits the screen. And without even realizing, I went, nope, and I walked right out. And my friend was already in the theater, and he said, did I just hear you yell nope? <laughs> when I came back into the movie theater, I said, yes, I did. Yes, I did. Ironically, though, I love reading the plots of scary movies. I really like knowing the story. I just hate the act of being scared. If I could watch a horror movie with all the scary parts pulled out, I'd consider it. But they don't make those because they're not horror movies. Some of my favorite horror movies to, to read, not watch, when things are not as they seem. Think Anything by Jordan Peele, M. Night Shyamalan, movies like Get Out, The Sixth Sense, Signs, The Village, if you've seen any of those, I've read all of those. They each have a plot that, that as the movie progresses, you realize that the setup, what you're experiencing, things are not as they seem. There's something off, and you're not sure what it is. It's this idea that there are things lurking below the surface, and they are completely unseen but you feel them, and you experience them. And it's a great storytelling device. When it's done really, really well, and I think those movies all do it really, really well. Uh, spoiler alert, Bruce 
uh, Willis is actually dead the whole time. Crazy. And if I just ruined that for you, that movie came out in 1998, so you should have seen it by now. <laughs> sorry, sorry. So each, each interaction in these kind of films and, and each word and moment and sometimes even just little actions have a new level of weight to them. Each action has its own separate intention, different from what you're actually seeing. And if they're done really, really well, really well, you don't see the change coming. It hits and you go, whoa. Or you're reading it, in my case, and go, whoa, I bet that's crazy. But when you watch the movie a second time, you see things. You experience things differently. Because knowing the context, the entire film, the entire story takes on a different shape in a different form. Now, as we've been doing in 1 Peter, we're thinking about the nature of our faith, our fellowship of Jesus, shaping not only our culture, but the culture. And there are some great similarities between what I'm talking about with unseen but felt and the words of Peter. When we really dig into the nature of of culture, the phrase unseen yet experienced is a perfect description for culture. Culture is one of the most effective. It affects everything in your life and it defines so many components of our life that we don't even realize the branching effects of culture into our existence. Whether it's our work, whether it's an organizational culture that we are a part of, the culture that develops in your relationships, or even the culture in your own home. Have you ever walked into a friend's home when you were growing up and something about the home felt unsettling? Or have you ever gone to a friend's home and something about it felt like your home and you could just relax? That's culture. It's unseen, it's unexplained, but it's very, very, very present. And it's one of those things that, that you might not always be able to define it or name it or put your finger on it. You can always feel it. Everyone is aware of when a culture is good. Everyone is very aware of when a culture is bad. And every interaction within said culture is shaped by these feelings and this experience. It touches everything in its reach. Now, to radically shift a culture rapidly turns things upside down. Have you ever been a part of a culture-shaping initiative, maybe at your work, where they realize our culture's kind of bad, and they set out to change it? And what happens? Everything's unsettled. Even if it's a good change, it feels really bad at first. Because we don't know how to react because things are different. This is exactly what Peter is doing in our passage. Peter is reframing the cultural functions for followers of Christ. He's turning the social order that is the kingdom of God upside down. And in simple terms, he's proclaiming that what you feel that you know to be true 
the things that you believe at your core, they might not be as they seem. Now, first, some context. You heard the word slavery. And oftentimes, that gets our back up a little bit. The Apostle Paul writes in similar themes as Peter. But unlike our passage in Peter, Paul is generally writing to a Christian audience. Many of his letters are to a church and to the people within that community of believers. For example, his words to the church of Ephesus in Ephesians chapter 6, verses 5 through 9. Paul writes, Slaves, obey your earthly masters with deep respect and fear. Serve them sincerely as you would serve Christ. Try to please them all the time, not just when they are watching you. As slaves of Christ, do the will of God with all your heart. Work with enthusiasm, as though you were working for the Lord rather than for people. Remember that the Lord will reward each one of us for the good that we do, whether we are slaves or free. Verse 9, masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Don't threaten them. Remember, you both have the same master in heaven, and he has no favorites. So what Paul is demanding here is his listeners to alter the slave-master relationship from one that is rooted in domination, in control, in ownership of another human And he's turning it upside down into a relationship that is built upon Christian love and respect for one another, which, to be clear, was not the cultural norm. Paul is not condoning or approving of slavery. We should understand that. It's really much the opposite. The attitude in this text is more of an attitude of as long as this exists, as long as slavery is a thing, then here is how followers of Jesus respond to this thing. It's helpful to remember that elsewhere in the scriptures, it calls for the release of slaves, calls for the breaking of chains that bind calls for freedom from oppression. Remember, the Old Testament is much of a book about God's people being freed from what? Slavery. Slavery. Yet, Paul and Peter, in their time, are very realistic in their message to their audience. And that's important to remember, that as we read Scripture, it was written for a specific audience. We cannot put, speaking of culture, our cultural norms into what Paul or Peter are writing because it's completely different. While slavery is both evil and unfortunate and not what God intended for not only his people but any people, it is also the daily reality of the original readers of their words. So if we were to place ourselves in the context of their original message, one scholar writes that the New Testament is critiquing the core assumptions of Roman slavery 
the dehumanizing of people made in God's image, abusiveness as a matter of course, and the very idea of ownership over human lives. So, when you hear slave, don't get your back up. Try and stay open to what they are teaching to us here. Historians believe that as much as 30% of the Roman population were slaves. 30%. Roman society was a society built upon slave labor. And slaves were not just workers, people who um, facilitated manual labor. Slavery was so widespread that it included many today who be regarded as professional working people, managers of estates, physicians, teachers, tutors. If Rome conquered you, chances are you were now a slave. So much so that Josephus writes in historical texts that upon many of much of Israel being conquered by Rome, there was mass suicide because they realized that by being conquered, I am no longer free, I am a slave. Second century writer Gaius, who was a Roman lawyer himself, describes the people of Rome as either free or slaves. The fundamental categories of identity rested on your title as either slave, freed slave, or free born. Your personal rights and even the level to which you could defend yourself from others depended on the reality of your title. So understanding this then, let's return to our original passage where Peter is directly addressing the individual slave. And when we, when we understand this concept, we realize that Peter is not condoning slavery. In fact, he is giving the slave their own agency. He is making the slave responsible for their own behavior, no matter the situation. And no matter who their master was, how their master treated them, or if their master was a follower of Christ, which was possible, or was not. In other words, Peter is saying, slave, listen to me. God is the only owner that matters. Another scholar writes, even if the New Testament authors did not proclaim the end of slavery, their redefinition of freedom and slavery challenged the fundamental social values of their day. So, keeping all of this in mind, here again Peter's words. You who are slaves must submit to your masters with all respect. Do what they tell you. Not only if they are kind and reasonable, but even if they are cruel. For God is pleased when conscious of his will, you patiently endure unjust treatment. 
Of course, you get no credit for being patient if you are beaten for doing wrong. But if you suffer for doing good and endure it patiently, God is pleased with you. Now, enter us here now. We cannot control who owns us. We cannot control who we answer to or how they treat us. But we can control our response. And we can control our attitude. Will we respond with hatred, in kind with hatred? Frustration, in kind with frustration? Or will we choose love? Now, does this mean that we endure being kicked and abused over and over and over again? No, it does not. If you can, you should extricate yourself from abusive relationships, whether that be a work relationship or a home relationship or a friendship relationship or a family relationship. If you have the ability to remove yourself from that relationship, then you should. You should. But if you can't, how will you respond? Peter's listeners didn't have that choice. They couldn't leave. They were slaves. The only decision that they could make was how they would respond. God always expects a response of love and a response of goodness. That is how the kingdom of God works. This is distinctly countercultural then and maybe even more countercultural now. How will we respond? Now, all of this leads to another important question and a, and a difficult question. Does this mean that God wants us to suffer? Does this mean that we are owed suffering as part of this life? The answer is an emphatic no. No. God does not want not only his people, but any people to suffer. But as we have seen, as we have experienced, many in this room, some not, the experience of life is far more nuanced than that. God does not want us to suffer. But the pains and the agonies of life are not the way that things were supposed to be. Yet, God sends Jesus. And Jesus' death acts as a sacrifice to bring an end to suffering. Jesus' sacrifice comes to offer humanity a free pass into the kingdom of God and into an eternity that is free of suffering and full of complete and total restoration. But in the meantime, followers of Christ are assured that while this life will contain suffering and this life will contain hardship, 
that our eternity will not. Yet, to be alive means that suffering is an unavoidable component to living. It's just how things are. It's not how things were supposed to be, but it's how things are. So in the meantime, as Peter writes in verse 21, God called you to do good, even if it means suffering, just as Christ suffered for you. He is your example, and you must follow in his steps. As is always the case for followers of Jesus, he is the example. And in the midst of suffering, we are compelled to do good. To do good. Someone very familiar with suffering, Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He was a theologian, pastor who stood against Nazi Germany. He was a man deeply practiced in suffering. When we suffer and when we see the suffering of others, Bonhoeffer writes, God is in that time of need with us, suffering too and weak too, bowed down too. It is not a religious act which makes a Christian, but participation in the suffering of God in the life of the world. I have to be honest, it's not super encouraging. But sometimes when we're suffering, what do we need? Yeah, we'd like an end of suffering. That would be wonderful. But we don't always have that option. So what's the next best thing? Someone to sit with us. Someone to be with us. Someone to put their arm around us and say, this is awful. Full stop. No toxic positivity here. This is terrible. And while this is terrible, I am committed to sitting here with you. You are not alone. Isn't that what we want when we're suffering? Yeah, we want an end. But if we can't find an end, then we just don't want to be alone. Bonhoeffer is writing that we, as followers of Christ, when we suffer, we are never alone. And not only are we never alone, but this is what participation in the kingdom of God looks like, to suffer with God alongside of us. To live in this world, to be a light of the goodness of God in our daily comings, our daily goings, and all of the relationships and interactions therein. There will be suffering. But if one decided to lock themselves away forever to avoid all pain, all agony, all discomfort, isn't that in and of itself just another form of suffering, of loneliness, of isolation? So we can remove ourselves from this, but our suffering will just look a little bit different. Edmund Clowney said, 
Peter does not ask us to view suffering as inevitable in the world under the curse. He does not ask for stoic resignation. A life of suffering is our calling, not our fate. It is our calling just because we are God's people. It is our calling because it was Christ's calling. And Christ calls his disciples to follow him. Again, not super encouraging. But it's what we need. It shifts our perspective. It shifts our culture from one of, I can suffer no longer. God, how could you do this to me? To, God, thank you for being with me in my suffering. It's still hard. It's still difficult. But we are not alone. From Bonhoeffer again in in his book, The Cost of Discipleship. The cross is laid on every Christian. The first Christ suffering, which every person must experience, is the call to abandon the attachments of this world. It is that dying of the old man which is the result of their encounter with Christ. As we embark upon discipleship, we surrender ourselves to Christ in union with his death. We give over our lives to death. Thus it begins. The cross is not the terrible end to an otherwise God-fearing and happy life, but it meets us at the beginning of our communion with Christ. When Christ calls the person, he bids them come and die. The start, the beginning of our relationship with Christ is to participate in the suffering of Christ. Peter's invitation is one of acceptance. Peter is not saying hide yourself away, extricate yourself from suffering. Peter is saying go and live. Do good. Because whether you choose to live or not, suffering is a present companion. So if suffering is a non-negotiable, then you might as well go live. And you might as well go do good because it makes no difference of if you suffer or not. So why not add to the world? Why not add to the lives of those around you? Suffering is not a choice, but doing good absolutely is. We cannot control our circumstances, but we are always in control of our response. From James chapter 1 verses 2 through 4. And keep in mind this is the introduction to the book of James. Verse 2. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds because you know 
that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. In other words, the suffering is a necessary component of life to turn you into who God wants you to be. Does God want you to suffer? No. Does God want you to be all that you can be in him? Yes. How do we get there? Take some suffering. Take some suffering. As I close tonight, I'd like to return to the beginning. Those who follow Jesus can know that that what we see, what we experience, things are not as they seem. In fact, the most true experience of life lies in the unseen. The culture of the kingdom of God, the way in which we as Christians should respond as members of the kingdom of God is distinctly countercultural, not just to the original listeners of the New Testament, but to us here now, today. The secret to a life of joy in suffering is not to try and escape suffering but it's to keeping the end in sight. We know how our story concludes. We know what we are promised after this life. I love how Jesus begins his Sermon on the Mount. We often refer to it as the Beatitudes. Reading from Matthew 5, 1 through 12. Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them. If you would, would you close your eyes? Take a deep breath and receive the words of Jesus. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful. For they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, 
persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad for great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. It is the things that we don't want to experience. The things that we don't want to live are the same things that Jesus is teaching us are the things that make our life blessed. Because in experiencing these things, we experience the life of Jesus. Tonight's teaching from Peter is a lesson in submission. True freedom is only found in laying down what we want and laying down what is often our right that we feel of retribution on those who hurt us and instead in submitting to God. He makes it clear that the individual who submits whether that be to a boss, to a leader, to another person in authority over them, and especially to the Lord, have a special privilege. Serving the Lord through service of others is a humble witness that intensely reveals the love and the goodness of God. And this is a particular humility that all who call themselves followers of Jesus must come to learn. These words of Peter, to submit and do good, they do not diminish the individual's freedom of choice. They do not diminish our own free will or our own agency. Instead, it is an invitation to live life in a beatitudinal manner. That in every interaction, every decision, that that those who live in this way will be blessed. And they will reveal the goodness of God to the world. Is it fun? No. Is it hard? 100% yes. But it is not just our responsibility. It is our joy. To submit to submit to whoever it is that is on top of you, whoever it is that is above you, who you might not agree with sometimes. How do you submit? By doing good and sharing love. For Christ submitted when he certainly did not need to. If there is ever an example of someone getting what they surely don't deserve, it is Jesus Christ. And yet, what was his response? Submission. Love and goodness and grace. So for us to follow Christ, it takes the same. It takes the same. Can we stand together tonight? There's a really amazing story that I like to tell sometimes. And that's that when Michelangelo was carving David out of the stone, 
You may know what that sculpture looks like. It's gigantic. It's huge. It's also perfect. And someone asked, Michelangelo, how did you carve David out of the stone? Michelangelo's response was, I simply let him come out. David was always in the stone. That's what life feels like sometimes. Sometimes it feels like things are carving away and carving away and cutting away. And it's not fun and it's time consuming and it hurts. It's not pleasant. It's suffering. But if we are going to be who God wants us to be, we must allow God to shape what he already sees. To shape what he knows is already there inside of you. And all it takes from us is a willingness to be shaped. And that's what submission to God looks like. So perhaps you're in a season of life where it feels like you are suffering at every corner. I wish you weren't. I know that your friends and your family, hopefully they all feel the same. But my prayer is that you have someone who can come alongside of you and stand with you as you experience whatever you are experiencing. I also hope that this community of Anchor Church is full of people who simply want to sit with the people that they love and that the people that are in this room right now as they suffer because we all need somebody, as the song says, to lean on. But know this, that God is with you too. That God is with you as you suffer. And that as you suffer, he is carving something beautiful out of your existence. What does he ask for in return? To suffer? To live? To do good? And to love? To love. Let's pray.